every single story, um, every great drama has a moment in the story when the tension builds to a climax and a resolution to a tension is finally introduced. Every story builds up to a point when you're wondering, how is this going to work itself out? What's actually going to happen? And, and the climax comes and resolu- resolution is introduced and that resolution then gets played out in the lives of the characters for the rest of the story. And, and that type of structure is no different in God's drama of redemption, the storyline, the overarching storyline that we've been walking through this year as we've been walking through the Old Testament and now we're entering into the New Testament. Uh, there's a moment in which the tension that's built up, uh, the tension that has grown, is going to come to a climax. And God is going to clarify and introduce the resolution to that great tension. And we're getting to that point this week in, in our journey. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he used to quote a famous Latin poet or playwright uh, who spoke about the rule of drama, the rule of stories being this. A god is not to be introduced into the action of a play unless the plot has gotten into such a tangle that only a god could unravel it. And Luther would say, thus then, Christianity is Christ. God's solution to the tangle that our sin has gotten our hearts into is the person of Jesus Christ. This week, we are going to begin looking into this transition in the story when in the biblical drama, in the biblical narrative, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, is introduced to us in God's Word directly and clearly. So if you've got your Bibles open, get to the New Testament. Get to, there's a page in your Bible somewhere that says New Testament. That's all it says on it. It begins with the book of Matthew. I don't know what page number in your Bible that starts on, but it begins with the gospel according to Matthew. And for the next several weeks, we are going to spend time in the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. And this morning, I just want to take the time we have to lay some foundations. We're just doing foundational work this morning just to get us ready for what we're doing in the next coming of weeks as we look at these books. And so I want to start by just publicly just addressing a couple of questions that always come up whenever we begin teaching through the Gospels or teaching through these first four books of the Bible. And here's what they are. What are the Gospels? Why in the world are they called the Gospels? Secondly, why are there four of them? Why is there the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John? What are they and why do we have four? So let's start with the first one first. What are the gospels? Why are they called the gospels? It would help to understand what the word gospel actually means so that we can understand what's being said. The word gospel just means news. It just means news. And though for the majority of us that word gospel has significantly religious overtones, We think about the gospel, we think about Christianity, we think about gospel, we might think about religion. The word gospel is not a religious word. Christianity didn't come up with the word gospel. The word gospel is a historically political word. In fact, in the first century, they they chose the word gospel to represent the essence of the Christian faith being primarily good news. You see, what would happen is whenever a, a victory would be won or a new king would come into power, they would send out heralds all throughout the empire announcing the gospel the good news of this victory, the good news of this great king. They would announce the good news of some significant historic event that had taken place that now has impact on the lives of the people. That's what gospel means, good news. And the early church chose this particular word out of all the words in the languages that they could have chosen to represent the the essence of Christianity. They chose this word, good news, because it best sums up the nature of the Christian faith in itself. 
Christianity really is good news of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is good news of what God has done for you, not news of what you have to do for God. And so the early church took this word and used it to explain really the the essence of the Christian faith. Good news about Jesus. This is what we see proclaimed in these first four books of the Bible. The gospel, the good news of Jesus according to Matthew. The gospel, the good news of Jesus according to Mark. The gospel, the good news of Jesus according to Luke and according to John. That's why the writer Mark, he starts his account off this way. Mark 1.1, you don't have to turn there. It says, the beginning of the gospel, which means what? News, particularly good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how it starts, because that's what gospel means. The primary purpose for these first four books of the Bible is to tell the good news of God that is found in the person and work of Jesus. That's why they're called the gospel accounts. It's not really that tricky, but that's why they're called that. So why are there four? Why do you need four of them to actually do this? Well, they were written for the same primary purpose, to tell the good news of God through the person of Jesus, but they were also written from four different people, or by four different people, for four very different audiences, for a vast array of audiences. There were four guys with four personalities and and four giftings, all inspired by the Holy Spirit to narrate the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, to tell the good news of Jesus to four primarily different audiences. That's why we have four. So, for example, Matthew, he tells the good news about Jesus to an audience of Christians that come from primarily Jewish backgrounds. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and all the allusions and references to the coming Messiah. And so when Matthew begins his his gospel account and he's trying to connect the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus to the unfolding story of God's redemption, do you know where he takes the people back to? He takes them back to the promise that God had made to Abraham, the patriarch of the Israelites, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. God had promised that through him one would come that would bless the entire world. And Matthew takes the story of Jesus back to that promise so that those people, that audience, could see it and see it as the fulfillment of what God had promised. Luke, he was writing to a particularly Christian audience that came from a Gentile background. They didn't have the same kind of understanding of the Old Testament that the people that Matthew was writing to. So when Luke hinges the story of Jesus into this story of God's redemption. Do you know where he takes Jesus back to? When he chronicles Jesus' genealogy, he takes everybody back to Adam, the one from whom all people, all humanity came from. He's writing to a Gentile audience primarily, those who don't come from the lineage of Abraham. And he wants us to see that Jesus has been the unfolding of God's promise all the way back from the promise he made to Adam, that one day from the woman, one would come, who would ultimately crush the head of this deceiver, this serpent, and victory and redemption would come through him. John, he's different than all of them. You read John's gospel account, it's just so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the style and the way that he wrote. He's always talking about the universal redemption of God for all people. John tries to anchor the story of Jesus into God's unfolding redemptive plan. Do you know where he takes us? He takes us back to before creation. It's for everybody before all time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before anything that ever was came into existence, He was there. And they all believe that the the story and the person and work of Jesus is part of the unfolding plan of God's redemption. In fact, it's the hinge of God's redemptive plan. And four different guys and four different audiences with four different personalities and voices, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, narrate the good news 
of Jesus of Nazareth in a way that their particular audience would understand. But as you read through it, and as we go through it, you'll probably notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they often sound a lot alike. You read them and you think, I think I heard that in Matthew. Or wait a minute, I read that in Mark. Or wait a minute, that's all very familiar. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels. You may have heard that word before. They're called the synoptic gospels. That simply means you can read them together. They can be read together. They're the good news accounts of the life of Jesus that are very similar. And here's what I mean, just to kind of give you some information. 97% of Mark's words, the gospel according to Mark, are found in the gospel according to Matthew. 97%. 600 verses out of the 660 verses in Matthew are found in, or of Mark are found in Matthew. Luke, 88% of Mark's words are found in Luke. So there's something going on. You can read them all together. You can, you can find them all there. Well, most scholars believe that Mark was one of the first gospel accounts that was written. And Matthew and Luke were able to reference or read and, and gather their accounts as well, but using, using Mark at different points in time. And so there are these three that will sound oftentimes very similar, but there are four different guys writing to four different audiences inspired by the one Holy Spirit to narrate the life, ministry, and impact of Jesus of Nazareth. And now let me just kind of point to this thing. This came up in between these two services. So I want to take a moment just to point to this so that you can kind of see how we can see these similarities and, and differences played out a little bit. Let me give you one example. If Mark wrote his gospel account first and Luke and Matthew had the opportunity to read it, had the opportunity to see it as they were compiling their stories and their narratives and were writing their accounts, I want you to hear how they tell the same story in slightly different ways based on the personality and the audience of the author. You want to see an example of this? Here's one. Mark chapter 5 tells the story. I'll read it to you. You can get there if you want. Tells the story of one of Jesus' healings. And this is how Mark says it. Mark 5, 25. It says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. The story goes on, and Jesus heals her, and that's how Mark narrates this particular account, right? So Luke, possibly, most likely, had a chance to read Mark's account, and Luke is writing his account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and here's how Luke tells the story. Luke chapter 8, sorry, in verse 42. Luke says, and Jesus was on his way. The crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And he narrates how Jesus went on to heal her. If you're paying attention, Mark said she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Luke, what was his profession? He was a doctor. Luke is now narrating this account, and Luke doesn't seem to include that little tidbit from Mark that she had suffered under the care of many doctors. She had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Four different personalities, four different audiences, all inspired by the same Holy Spirit to narrate the life, ministry, and impact of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what we have in these gospel accounts. God is bringing to a climax, unfolding the resolution 
of his redemptive, of his redemptive work through this man, Jesus. And here's the last foundational thing I, I want you to get this morning before we start trying to work through it a little bit. The entire story of redemption, the entire drama of God's redemption hinges on this man, Jesus. He is the crux of the issue. All of it hinges on Jesus. The good news, the gospel, is the good news about this man, Jesus. Listen to how Martin Luther said it. He said, hear the door, talking about Jesus, here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. So the door is flung wide open for you to understand all of Holy Scripture. And here it is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. It all hinges on him. The entire outworking of God's redemptive promises for God's glory and our redemption and salvation all hinges on this man, Jesus. John Calvin will go on to say, the whole gospel, which means good news, right? The whole gospel is contained in Jesus. To even move one step from Jesus means to withdraw yourself from the gospel entirely. It all hinges on him. Even more contemporary, John Stott. John Stott, a great pastor from England, said, the origin of the gospel, so the origin of the good news, is God the Father. Its substance, the substance of the good news, is Jesus, his son. Its attestation, what testifies to it, is the Old Testament scripture. And its scope, what's the scope of the good news? All the nations on the earth. Our immediate purpose in proclaiming this good news is to bring people to the obedience of faith, but our ultimate goal is the greater glory of the name of Jesus himself. Therefore, the good news is the gospel of God about Jesus according to scripture for the nations under the obedience of faith and for the sake of God's name. It all hinges on this man, Jesus, which means if you're going to understand the Christian faith, if you're going to understand Christianity, you've got to deal with this man, Jesus, which also means if you're going to try to dismiss Christianity, if you're going to try to deny Christianity, if you're going to try to disregard Christianity, you have got to dismiss, disregard, and deny this man, Jesus. You can disagree with me. You can disagree with people's political views. You can disagree with people's social views, but you have not really dismissed and disproved or discredited Christianity until you deal with this man, Jesus, because he is the substance of Christianity. Everything about our faith hinges on this man. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus. We've got to understand that as we begin walking through these gospel accounts, these stories of the good news of God's redemptive plan unfolding in the life and ministry of this man. And as we've taken the, the first half of the year to kind of unpack this story through the Old Testament, we've seen numerous references and accounts pointing to him. But now we're going to take our time for the next several weeks to look at the particular biblical accounts that deal with him directly. So, now that we've laid some foundations and we have a little bit of time left, if you'll turn to the gospel according to Luke, we will try to begin with the birth, the conception, the birth, and the immediate days of this man, Jesus. And if God gives me the capacity and the time we have left, hopefully we will see something of its impact in our lives and how we are to understand who this man is.
The birth of Jesus, please don't miss this, is the coming of God into human history. It is the coming of God into human history. And here's how I want to structure the rest of our time. It's around this statement. The birth of Jesus was nothing short of a miraculous act of humble obedience for you. A miraculous act of humble obedience for you. Now we'll try to take that statement apart, phrase at a time, looking at the gospel according to Luke primarily, and see what Luke is saying in this. First is, the birth of Jesus was nothing short of miraculous. If you've got Luke open, turn to chapter 1, verse 26, and I'm going to read and we're just going to see what God is saying through this writer. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have, been found, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so we have a girl on the youngest end of the spectrum, 13 or 14 years old most likely, being visited by the archangel Gabriel, telling her something miraculous is about to happen. You who have not married this man yet, you who are a virgin, you're going to give birth to a son. And not just any son. Mary, you're going to give birth to the long-awaited, promised Messiah. Something miraculous is about to happen. Now, she may have been young, but she wasn't unintelligent. Look how Mary responded. Mary said to Gabriel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, here's a little assurance for you, Mary, that what's about to happen is capable of taking place. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. So right before this, we read the story, the account of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was on the other end of the spectrum from Mary. She was beyond childbearing years and had not been able to have a child. She had no children, but Gabriel had already appeared to her and said, listen, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be a miracle. And whenever that happens in the story of the Bible, we've seen it over and over in the Old Testament, that means that child has a particular role to play in God's unfolding drama of redemption. And we'll see his role in the coming weeks, this boy that will be born to Elizabeth named John. But Gabriel assures her, look, Mary, it's going to happen. It's, it's already happening in Elizabeth. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Look at what he says, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, again, read this account like a human. We're not at Christmas time. Read it like a human. Our Savior's miraculous, supernatural birth occurred in the same biological way that every child since has occurred except for one amazing, miraculous moment. The egg of a young girl named Mary 
overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. What a great word. Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Was fertilized. Grew in her womb as a zygote. Became a young baby. And was born into this world the same way every baby before him and after him has been born into this world. The birth of Jesus. Nothing short of miraculous not only miraculous in its nature, but miraculous in how every aspect of it lined up with what God had been saying all along to his people that we've read in the Old Testament through the prophets that God had sent his people, pointing them to the day when this would come. Remember Matthew, he writes to a particularly Jewish audience, those who would have been aware of the prophets. Matthew tells this same story a little different way, and one of the things that Matthew continues to do over and over is he takes his audience back to the Old Testament to show how every step of this from conception to birth was promised by God in the prophets. He was just fulfilling every step of it here in the way that Jesus came into this world. Flip over to Matthew. We'll do it real fast. We can do it real fast. I get excited about this. you got to see this. The birth of Jesus was miraculous in part because every aspect of it was in accordance with the scriptures. Some 700 plus years before Jesus ever came onto this earth. And most people say you can probably explain away the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. He, He manipulated it. He was just a man on this earth who knew the prophecies and he manipulated all the different aspects of his life to fall in line with all the prophecies that were about the Messiah. Really? Really? In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and, and 23, Matthew says this, All of this from the birth of Jesus took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now how was a baby who was not yet born supposed to manipulate the details of his birth so that he could find a, a virgin and be like, hey, hey mom, you're going to give birth to me. You have to hold back a little bit, but special way, you're going to give birth to me. How is he going to manipulate this detail to line up with what God had promised all along through the prophets? Matthew's going to keep going. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Matthew says, they told him, talking about the announcement to Herod that this baby was born, they told him that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. For it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Micah 5, 2. How was a baby in his mama's belly going to tell her, look, I know we're in Nazareth, but if you could hurry dad up a little bit, we got to get to Bethlehem. And somehow, you know, you just get the donkeys doing double time. we got to get up there. What infant in the womb has the capacity to manipulate these kind of details of his life? Matthew's not done. Chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this. He's just piling them on. Chapter 2, verse 15. Talking about, again, Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt after he was born. It says, and he rose and Joseph arose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. No way to manipulate or make up all of this. The birth of Jesus from its conception to its outplaying was a miraculous act of God. And this miracle, we'll come back to it over and over through his life as he references who he is and the mission that God has sent him on. This miraculous birth lays the foundation for all that Jesus will say, all that Jesus will do. It will lay the foundation for his ministry. And we've got to just understand that this birth, from conception to birth, was miraculous in nature. It wasn't just miraculous, but it was a miraculous act, we said, of humility. 
a miraculous act of humility. The birth of Jesus was humble beyond measure. I'm going to flip back over to Luke, and we'll go to chapter 2. Let's see how Luke unpacks this for us. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So now they're going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's, again, according to the scriptures, where the Savior was going to be prophesied. But Jesus was not in the womb, manipulating the details of all this to get to Bethlehem. This is how the story was unpacking. Now, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 85 to 90 miles. They'd go about 15 to 18 miles a day, which means they traveled for probably about five to six days. It was a difficult journey. She was pregnant. Verse 6 says, and while they were there, the time came for her to have birth. Now, just, just deal with this. I know at Christmas time, we always think, they arrived in Bethlehem, she gave birth to the baby. The Bible just says that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. We have no idea, really, how long they were in Bethlehem before Mary gave birth. We like to romanticize it a little bit at Christmas time. I think that's okay. But the scriptures say we don't really know when it happened. It just says that while they were there, it happened. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, talk about humility. And talk about humility. Luke says there was no place for them to properly stay where she could give birth and take care of that baby. And so they find themselves in a stall, an animal stall, behind an inn. And when Jesus is born, she places him in a feeding trough, in a manger. The Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the long-awaited King of God's people, laying in a feeding trough in an animal stall behind an inn in Bethlehem. Now again, make it human. Imagine now, I'm thinking pregnant royalty. Imagine Prince William and Kate going to have this baby, and this is the circumstance surrounding how their baby is going to be born. Can you imagine the cries of injustice? Outrage. A feeding trough and a stall? That's not fit for this baby. That's the potential future king or queen of England. No such cry went up for Jesus. No one saying, a stall? A feeding trough? Do you know who this is? The birth of Jesus was a miraculous act of humility. And the humility is going to continue to play out in this story. But this time, it's going to be just absolutely soaked and drenched in irony. And I don't want you to miss the irony in the story. Let's just read it and and look at it for what it is. Luke tells us now in verses 8 through 20 that the first people to hear about this birth, to get the announcement of this miraculous birth of the coming Messiah, of the coming Savior, the first ones to now come and lay their eyes on this future king, it wasn't the most powerful It wasn't the most prestigious. It was who? It was the shepherds. Again, we like to romanticize the shepherds at Christmas time. But in their day and in their time and in their culture, they were some of the most despised people. According to the law, they were unclean. They were outcasts. They were often seen to be very dishonest. 
So who does God decide to reveal the birth of the long-awaited Messiah to? He reveals it to these shepherds. And they get to come and lay their eyes on this king. And they don't come to a palace. They come to an animal stall. And they look at this baby laying in a feeding trough. And Luke is telling us all this for a reason. There's something he wants us to see. There's something the early readers would have understood. And that's this, that this Savior, this long-awaited king, he's not a Savior just for the capable and the powerful. His primary audience isn't the particular powerful, pretty people in town. This Savior and this king, this Savior is for everyone. He's the king of kings for the poor, for the outcasts, for the downtrodden, for the sinners, just like you and me. In the birth of Jesus, in this miraculous, humble act of obedience for you and I, the cultural values of the world are literally being turned upside down on their heads, and and Luke wants us to pick up on that as we're going. The wisdom of the world is being shown foolish by God and what he's doing here. This is what Paul will go on to say later when he writes to the church in Corinth. He'll say, has not God made foolish through the life and ministry of Jesus, the wisdom of this world? This is what's happening in this birth. Now, there's another group of people, though, we can't miss it, that we tend to associate with the shepherds, don't we? Another group of people that come to see Jesus, and we, again, romanticize it at Christmas time, and I'm not against that, but we need to see what the Bible says. Who do we closely connect with the shepherds? Come on, you can admit it. The wise men, the magi. But here's the thing. They weren't with the shepherds. They didn't come with the shepherds. Now, Luke doesn't give us the story of the wise men. Matthew does. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, here's what it says about these wise men coming to see this baby. It says that the wise men going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Just, Just a little side bit for you. Where did the wise men find the baby? In a manger in a stall? Now, they found him in his house with his mom. The wise men weren't with the shepherds there in Bethlehem. And they found Jesus with his mom at home some period of time later. We don't know exactly where. There are other little things in the text that will let us know that this wasn't an immediate occurrence in the same way that the shepherds might have been. In fact, when the news goes out to Herod and Herod sends out his decree that you read about here to have the firstborn son or all all male children of Israel under two years of age killed, That's assuming that from the time the birth was announced to the time that Herod gives a decree, Jesus could have been up to two years old. So the wise men, they weren't with the shepherds, but they came. And here's what Matthew and Luke both want us to see. The blessing that comes from this Savior, the impact that will come from this baby, is universal. The people that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Gospels to narrate coming to see this child, whether in Bethlehem or at home, They were Gentiles. They weren't people of Israelite heritage. The blessing of this baby isn't going to impact just Israel, but it's for everyone. It's for all peoples and all places and all tribes and all tongues. We'll see this playing itself out more in the life and ministry of Jesus as we work our way through it. But this birth was a miraculous act of humble, let's not miss this last part though, obedience. Obedience. Jesus, in his conception, 
birth and even his infanthood, the life of Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And this is a huge thing that we often gloss over in our telling of the, of the story of Jesus and the impact of Jesus. Everything about Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Look back at, at Luke chapter, chapter 2, verse 21. Luke says this. He says, at the end of eight days, little comma here, when he was circumcised. Now, why would Luke throw that in there? Have you ever read this and wondered why mention that? I mean, was that a, a hot question at the time? I mean, why mention that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day? Here's his point. Jesus, from his earliest days, even his infanthood, obeyed and fulfilled the law of God perfectly. I mean, just on one hand, would Israel have accepted someone who blatantly disobeyed the law of Moses to teach them the truth of the law of Moses? No. But his obedience is even more vital to the bigger picture than, than really that. What Luke is trying to say and what readers would have picked up on is that Jesus is even better than Moses because they would have been familiar with the story of Moses and the fact that Moses, who, who God gave this law to, Moses who wrote this law down for God's people, Moses didn't obey it himself. Moses didn't circumcise his own son. And we learn in Exodus chapter four that God came to Moses and nearly killed him because of it. And here's Luke saying, even from the time that Jesus was conceived, and Matthew narrates how it fulfilled all of Scripture perfectly, from the time he was eight days old, everything about Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Jesus obeyed Moses' law better than Moses actually did. And Luke is going to just kind of pile this on. I want you to see that everything about the, even the early days of Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Look at verse 22. Just hear this repetition. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Luke is drawing our attention. Everyone who reads this and hears this to the fact that from day one, everything about Jesus' life was obedient to the law of Moses, to the law of God. From childhood, Jesus obeyed. From infanthood, Jesus obeyed the Mosaic Code. And that not only enabled him to speak with authority to Israel, but it was a critical aspect of what is often called Jesus' active obedience for our salvation. The implications of Jesus' obedience, of this being fulfilled even when he was an infant, get glossed over in our teaching about the life and ministry of Jesus all the time. I mean, even think about the, the creeds of our faith, the great historic creeds of our faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate? What about the years in between? What about his life? Did it have no value? Did it have no purpose? No. As we saw last week for those who were here, when Isaiah was prophesying about this coming servant who would suffer in our place for our sin as a substitutionary sacrifice for us that would fulfill the righteous demands of God, exhaust God's wrath, so that those of us who placed our faith in him could be forgiven of our sins. As, as much as we celebrate that aspect of Jesus' ministry, it would not have been sufficient if he had not lived his life perfectly in our place. Uh, we celebrate the cross of Christ. 
Every week, we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin, but his sacrifice would not have been sufficient if he had not perfectly fulfilled the law of God in our place. Everything about Jesus had to be perfect in our place because as we have seen, the holiness of God demands perfection from his people to have a relationship with him, and every single one of us knows none of us is actually perfect. None of us is righteous. Not one of us in thought, word, deed, attitude, motive, or action. So what do you do about that? I mean, how in the world can you fix that? You can't. You can't. What you need is someone who is perfect. What you need is someone who in every way possible lived the life that you and I can't live because of our sin. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus from day one. Everything about him fulfilled the law of God perfectly in our place so that when the time came when he laid down his life sacrificially as a substitute for you and I and on the cross God's just wrath for our sin was placed on him now because of that substitution for those who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus his perfect righteousness is now given us to us and on the cross when God exhausted his wrath on Jesus he could accept that sacrifice because it was sufficient, because it was perfect. Everything about Jesus' life from the day he was born perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And it was necessary. It was necessary for the salvation of every single man, woman, child, boy, and girl from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation across the earth. Everyone who believes in the person and work of Jesus and calls upon his name will be saved because everything about Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. From the time he was an infant to the time that he gave himself up in our place on the cross. And no other human being alive, no other human being who has ever walked on the face of this earth, from Moses to Abraham to Isaiah to Paul to Peter to any of them, none of them can say this, Only Jesus can. Only he fulfilled the totality of God's law perfectly. And he did it for you. He did it for you. His birth was a miraculous act of humble obedience for you. And that's what his name means. We saw in Luke's account that when the angel came to Mary, they said, you're going to have a son and you're going to name his, give his name Jesus. We saw on the eighth day when they had him circumcised, they gave him the name the angel had told him to give him, Jesus. Jesus means God saves. Matthew makes it even more clear. Matthew chapter one, verse 21. When the angel gives Mary the name that she used to give to this boy, she says, you're gonna give him the name Jesus. You're gonna call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Everything about the Christian faith hinges on this man, Jesus. You reject Jesus. You deny Jesus. You try to disregard Jesus. You will spend a life of eternity apart from God. But for all who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus, for all who call upon the name Jesus, for all who treasure Jesus and trust Jesus, he offers to us redemption, forgiveness, restoration, 
and an eternity of glory and joy in the presence of God forever. The miraculous and humble obedience of Jesus, even in his birth, was for you. And your eternal destiny rides on this man. Accept him, you find eternal life. Reject him, and you will find eternal separation and condemnation from God. But what you can't do is dismiss him. What you can't do is try to disregard him. Because everything hinges on who you say this man is. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I'd ask that just in the time that we have now and in the days going forward, she would give each and every single one of us the faith necessary to receive Jesus, the substance of the good news, to receive Jesus, who is the only good news that there is, and to receive Jesus, who is the only one who saves, who is the only one through which we have access to you. I pray that you give us the faith needed to receive this Jesus who is all that we need. I ask this in his name and for his glory and our eternal joy. Amen.